Father, again, we are thankful that you are a sovereign God. We say that with much passion and much meaningfulness because we realize that our lives are chaotic. And if it were not for you that we could trust in that all things work together for good, we would be most miserable people. As already has been prayed today, Father, may the teaching of your word, may the teaching of the Holy Spirit this morning through your just enormous word that you have given to us, your revelation of yourself, and especially today as we think of those things and events that still lie in the future, may it encourage our hearts. We ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. It's important for most of us uh, to know that our work is not in vain. Many of us have experienced those times when we have tried to make things happen our way, and we uh, go through all kinds of uh, certainties that things will work out for good. And uh, as you well know, sometimes it just doesn't happen that way. Uh, we cannot make things happen the way we want them. And we become discouraged. Uh, I have this little game some of you probably have played as well. It's this uh, Jenga game, you know, where you got the little sticks and you build this, you know. And, you, uh, and uh, so then you try to extract each piece, you know, and you go around and take turns doing that. And uh, you work so hard at that, at least I do, you know, I, I want to win, and my wife wants to win, and you want to win, and so, you know, we're perspiring everything else, and it gets tedious, and as we pull those little pieces out, and all oh, once it crashes, it goes all over the table, all over the floor, and I think, oh, why did I work so hard, you know, uh, you get down to those last two or three pieces, well, that's kind of like, uh, that is like life, we work hard at it, we want it to fit, we want it to work. And it's just no fun working at things that you know for sure are not going to work. In other words, you would not really get excited about playing on a ball team if you knew you were going to be winless. The part of being a part of a sports team is the fact that there's at least going to be some success. We may not be 10 and 0, we may not be 20 and 0, but we don't want to be 0 and 20. Uh, All of those things we look at and we say, you know, there's no purpose to doing things unless there is some little bit of certainty, perhaps, that it's going to pan out well. Well, the only one way I know that does that is when we come to the Word of God. We know how it really works well. The end does work well. We know who wins in the end. And may I say this, we know who is winning And the finality of it is all the world will know that God wins. And you and I as his children, we win also because we are co-heirs with him. But sometimes we forget, I forget, perhaps you forget, that you say, well, I know I'm going to win in the end because that's the way God has it planned and God is going to defeat Satan. And even though there may be some rough times ahead, we know that we win and that's a great truth. But sometimes we forget that today, in the midst of all the difficulties, we still are winning. Just put yourself into a some, t- some kind of a sports team. Let's take basketball, for instance. And if you film that whole game and you happen to win at the end, you can go back and watch it. And maybe by the second quarter, you're 15 points down. You'd say, there's no way. But you know, if you know how the end concludes, you take 15 points down, you'd say, but we're winning. 
And somehow by being 14 points down, maybe the opposing star breaks his leg. I don't know. But uh, uh, makes it a little easier maybe to have a comeback. But you and I would look at that and say, well, what it did, it really motivated us to try harder. And we did better defense. And, and we, we played better because we knew we had to pull it out. You know, that's a lot like life. If I can get up tomorrow morning when the world really looks dark and everything is falling apart around us and there's 10 feet of snow out there and it's blowing and you can't go to Walmart and I can't go to Staples, I tell you, we still win. (laughs) You're winning every day. Don't look just at the day. Look at the end and see. God knows. God has it planned well. Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning, is the fact is that we do win. For many of you, as you've been here each week, is in chapter 11 of Daniel. We looked at the first 35 verses last week. That talked about some very exciting things, but they're historical things. They have already occurred because we know the way Daniel wrote it down as the angel gave it to him. We can go back historically and find how those things really worked. And Tigus Epiphanes was really a forerunner of the Antichrist. And yet when we come to verse 36, some would say there's an enormous change. And between verse 35 and verse 36, there's at least 2,500 years. How do we know that? It doesn't say that. Well, there's three things that we ought to be aware of because it is important. When you come to verse 35... And then you come to verse 36. We do know there has to be a time gap there for three reasons. Number one is this. The reason why we can project a time even future to our own day, such as today, obviously, we know that still there is a ruler to come, much like the one we talk of in verses 30 to 35. We know there is this gap, and it is important because no historical figure has ever been like or would fulfill verses 36 through 45. That's one. Number two is we realize it is going to be fulfilled, and it will take a person that is uniquely different from Antigas Epiphanes, that Persian. One of the most significant reasons why we know it's there is because Jesus in Matthew 24, in his Olivet Discourse, talking about future things, which we know we have no historical record that's ever been fulfilled. Those things are so unique in 24 and 25 of Matthew, we know they still lie future. Now, that is because he says, Jesus says in Matthew 24, there has never been a time like verses 36 through 45. That is almost conclusive. It is conclusive because Jesus says so. So I just wanted to give you that little bit of information to say, because as you read verse 35, and then most of us read verse 36, just naturally you'd say, well, how do you get a break in there? How do you know there's some 2,500 years? That is not the only, that's not the only exception in the Old Testament. We sometimes call them double prophecies. Uh, you talk about the birth of Christ in Isaiah chapter 6. Well, that's a double prophecy. He's talking about a, a birth of his, a birth of the child with his wife, and then he was talking about the Christ child. It doesn't say that, but in order to make sense of that passage, you have to put that into place. 
Now then, come with me to Matthew chapter 24, because I want to read this to you because it sets the stage for these few verses we're going to be talking about this morning. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples in verse 21 of Matthew 24. He says, From then there will be a great tribulation. There will be a great time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world. So we know you can't go back historically and find a time that's fulfilling that. It has to be yet future. He goes on to say in this verse, nor ever will there be a time like this. Verse 22, unless those days which are still in the future had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now we're going to look at verse 29 of the same chapter. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man, Christ, will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That was never, that cannot be fulfilled in the verse, first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11. Another thing that we just always keep in mind as a general principle as you're reading about prophecy, and I know many of you are extremely interested in that, and rightly so. Remember, you don't get all of the events in any one book. Whether it's Daniel, whether it's Isaiah, Ezekiel, or the minor prophets, Matthew, Second Thessalonians, obviously the book of Revelation, all of those give you additional events. So if you go to any one book, if you go to Daniel, like we're doing here as we've been studying the book of Daniel, you get bits and pieces, so you have to be careful. If you had the time and carefully did it and put all of these things of everything that is said, then you get the full picture that God would want us to have. And so that's what we're doing this morning, not building the whole picture, but how was Daniel writing this? So let's look at the big point this morning. The God of this age is defeated by the God of eternity. The God of this age, Satan himself, the ruler of this present world, is defeated by the God of eternity. We know that is certain. You and I as believers can relax in that sense. We know who wins. We know that God is victorious and Satan is defeated. I think along with that, quote, big point, as we often call it, let me say it also this way. God is winning every day. And at the end of time, he exhibits it. That is helpful to me because there are dark days in all of our lives when it seems as though, why am I a Christian and my world is falling apart? Because God wins. And Lord, there is going to be sunrise tomorrow. And we will go through this. And you will enable me. And I will trust you. And we will be victorious. That's the Christian's call. Now, if I were not a Christian, I don't really know how I would handle life. Now, fortunately, for the first 27 years that I was not a believer, I was blinded. I did not see. I always saw hope. I did not see it as false hope, so I always thought I'll be okay. 
Becoming a Christian and letting God open up your mind to see it from God's perspective, I would be scared to death if I was an unsaved person because there is no hope outside of Christ. Now, let me take you to 1 John 2 and verse 22 because I want to use this word several times, Antichrist. Who is this Antichrist? Well, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 22, and remember as we said several weeks ago that the word Antichrist is never stated or mentioned by name in the book of Revelation. Always keep that in your understanding. It's only stated in 1 John in these writings. Now, there is what we would call the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, but there it's referred to as the beast, and we'll look at that a little bit later on this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar? Here's a characterization of an Antichrist. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the one that is always anti-Christ, against Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Now, that helps us if you are concerned, well, you know, I've got a friend that is in this religion and that religion and another religion. Any religion, any religious form that denies that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus has come in the flesh, is an antichrist. So, oh, man, that would be, should we say that? Yes, Scripture says it. You don't have to say it meaning, you don't have to say that with meanness. <laughs> you can say, my friend, let me share with you what the Bible says. The Bible says that anyone that denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, that he is the Son of God, that religion, that person who believes that, is an antichrist, the spirit of antichrist. That's how clear it is. We meet this at times in our various ministries here uh, around the area. Uh, there are this, there's this group that is Jesus only. Uh, they don't believe in the Trinity. There's only Jesus. That can't be true religion. As we have said before, without the Trinity, there is no Christianity. There can't be. And these are some of the statements that are made in the epistle of John. Now, to Daniel chapter 11. Here we go. Verses 36 through 45. Let's take verse 36 and 37 because it's going to talk about the characterization of the Antichrist. What do, what's his character? What does he do? Why does he do what he does? Well, in verse 36, it's referred to, Then the king will do as he pleases. No one will be able to say to this future Antichrist, this future world ruler who is yet to come, no one will have the ability, no one will have the power, no one will have the authority to say no to any of his desires. That's a character of the Antichrist. He will do, as the scripture says, he will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every God. Now some would say, well, when the Antichrist comes, the beast of the book of Revelation, he's going to be a Muslim, he's going to be this. No, he's, he has no religion. He is above all religions. So he doesn't pick one. He is the religion. He is God. He doesn't come through another religion. So he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things. The Hebrew word there gives us the indication of blasphemies. He will say such things about people and about the true God that you and I would just cringe and say, how could any human being speak about God that way? And so he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. What is that indignation? 
indignant. Indignation from the, from the scriptures simply has the concept of anger that is aroused by something that is unworthy or unjust. Be careful here because the indignation is God's indignation towards Israel for their sinfulness. And so there is, there is this anger that is aroused by a holy God because Israel, his chosen nation, is, has acted so unworthy and so unjust. And God has brought the Antichrist, the armies of the world, upon them to discipline them, to purify them, so that they will come forth as pure gold. So the indignation is finished. That which God has decreed upon Israel will be done by the armies and the leaders and the rulers of the world until God has finished his process of bringing Israel forth truly as his people. That's important. That still lies ahead for the nation of Israel. It helps us to know how to pray for them, how to witness to Jewish people. This is how our government ought to see Israel today. In verse 37, he refers back now to the Antichrist. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. His past, his ancestors will mean nothing to him. He has no allegiance to anybody but himself. That kind of helps us with people who have some concepts about our president. When you align some of those statements with what Scripture says, they prove themselves not to be true, nor could be. He goes on to say here, well, he has not only shown no regards for the gods of his fathers or for the religion of his ancestors or for the desire of women. Now, you're in a Hebrew book, Daniel, so probably, and this is a problem phrase here, but it seems like it'd be more consistent to take it from a Hebrew mindset, which the desire of all young Jewish women was to bear the Messiah. And so he says here that he has no desire, the, the desire of women. Now, some have come up with female gods, could be. Some have come up with homosexuality. But I think it's better to take it in the Hebrew concept and say he has no respect for the Messiah. Because the desire of all Jewish women of that day was to bear the Messiah. Nor will he show regard for any God. He only wants to worship himself. And this is what he goes after. He will seek to destroy everything in order to lift himself up as God. He will magnify himself above them all. He becomes the object of worship. Now, this is the Antichrist. That ruler, far beyond the depravity of Antigas Epiphanes, far beyond that character in and of itself, which was horrible, yet the Antichrist will be such that he only respects himself and all worship. He desires to be given to him. Now you see this in Second Thessalonians, just quickly. In Second Thessalonians, let's look at verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, Paul writes, to the church of Thessalonica, which was under extreme persecution in that day. For it will not come unless the apostasy, 
the moving away comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. Here's another characterization. The Antichrist, the beast of the book of Revelation, is one who is lawless. He cares for no law. He will create his own laws. A man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Everything he is about is lawlessness and destruction. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, purposes so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This occurs in the midst of the tribulation. You see, he makes a covenant. We know from other writings in, in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, that he makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. I will bring you peace. You put your trust in me. We'll make a covenant for, for one week or seven years, and I will protect you. And that covenant is made. But in the midst of the week, when the Antichrist, the beast, moves into Palestine to protect them from the kings of the north and the kings of the south, He will turn upon them, and he will desecrate, like Jesus said in Matthew 24, he will desecrate the altar in the temple, and he will set himself up as God. And then he turns on Israel, and for the next three and a half years, by today's population count of Jewish people, over 10 millions of Jewish people will die. This is the kind of man the Antichrist is. Now, though he will not worship any god, yet he worships himself. Always keep that with clarity. He will not worship anything else but himself. And since he is the only one worthy of worship, automatically he becomes God by what? By definition. He's the only one worthy. Back to Daniel chapter 11, verses 38 and 39. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses. You'd say, well... Isn't that a contradictory statement? No. A god of fortress is power of might. He worships. He's incensed by the fact that he desires, he wants that military might. It's an impersonal god. He becomes god because he has such a sovereign thirst for power. And it says, a god whom his fathers did not know, he will honor him with gold silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses, the strongest of nations, the strongest of world powers, with the help of a foreign god, which is a god of power, a god of might. And he will amass an enormous amount of wealth, and therefore he pays the nations of the world. To work with him, because by that time, from other directions of Scripture, is the fact the world will be on the verge of famine. So it will be easy for him to buy allegiances. And those who will give them their gold and their silver, he will proportion them and allow them to rule on his behalf all over the world, would be some indications that are given. But let's just for a moment, let's work on this verse 39, where he says he will take action against the strongest of fortresses, in other words, the strongest of world powers that were happening today, certainly the United States would be a part of that, with the help of a foreign god. Well, it, it does give indication here of an impersonal being. Who could it be? Well, we're not really sure. There's a lot of guesses here. 
But I think there's one that we should at least give attention to, and that's the image that is created in Revelation 13. Come with me. Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. Now, some would read the book of Revelation and say, well, the things that we read there, just that's just beyond human reason. Those things cannot happen. I would never indicate that because there is a God of the universe. All things are possible according to his decrees. And you and I would take this as literal truth here. Verse 11, then I saw another beast. This is Revelation 13 now. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. In 12, you have the Antichrist. Now there's another beast, as there is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is a satanic trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Well, here is what we have known from other passages about the false prophet. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and the false prophet had, uh, had two horns like a lamb, and he, the false prophet, spoke as a dragon. Verse 12, he, in reference to the false prophet, the other beast, exercises all the authority of the first beast, the Antichrist, in his presence. And he, the false prophet, makes the earth, uh, makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. Worship who? The Antichrist. Good thing we have pronouns, right? Sometimes. Now, notice what happens. Then he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It, it is as if the Antichrist has died from a fatal wound, but there seems to be a resurrection to life. In verse 13, he performs great signs. This false prophet performs great signs pointing to the Antichrist to be worshipped so that even he even makes fire came, come down out of heaven to the earth. Paul writes similar things to the Thessalonians about this. And the deceit that is given, that those in the tribulation without Christ will be deceived and they will believe the lie. They will, they will say, why shouldn't I believe this? I mean, who among us brings fire down from heaven? You know, even some of our TV preachers don't even do that yet. Yet. And he... He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, the Antichrist, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Why will people die in the tribulation because they will not fall down and worship the Antichrist? Because they will not fall down and worship the what? The image of the Antichrist. Verse 16. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark. Either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom in verse 18. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of man, and his number is 666. You know it as most of us have grown up, 666 is the mark of the beast. So it is. Basically, number six is one less than completion, and probably is just 
the number of man. And 666 just highlights what kind of a man this is. Now, I might say, just as an antidote to this, don't try to get that as a cell number. Years ago, when a certain company had a little office down here in Beaver, uh, I went in to get a cell phone. One of my, I think it was obviously my first one, and I wanted the number. I thought, what would be a number that I would remember well? Well, I could do my Social Security. I could do my birth date. You know, what would it be? And so, you know, in those days, they gave you like 10 sheets of paper, and you run your finger down there trying to find one you like. And one was 6736666. That's it. How could I forget 6736666? And the lady said, is that on there? I said, yes, ma'am, right there it is. I want that one. She said, I'm not going to give that to you. I'm dead serious. I'm not going to give it to you. I said, what do you mean you're not going to give it to me? And I said to her, yes, that's the number I want. I can remember that. She says, no. She said, and she looked at me, and I do not know who that lady was. And it's not because I'm famous, but, you know, we got a small town. She looked at me and says, aren't you the pastor at Daniel's Bible Church? Why in the world would you want that number? <laughs> I knew I was in trouble then. I knew I was in deep trouble. <laughs> so I kind of wound down my rhetoric, <laughs> and I said, okay, let me look for another number here. And I came up with 4488, so I left the sixes out. Anyway, all right. <laughs> Daniel 11:39. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge Him. This is the Antichrist now. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge Him, those who come with Him, these world powers. He will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. The geographic areas of the world will be given and ruled by those who have submitted themselves to Him. Folks, without Christ, you know, I look at this and I look what has transpired scripturally, even if you were an unsaved person, and you would say, you know, if that's always happened and God is God, then this certainly is going to happen. And what will I do in that day? Now, probably most of us here take what we call a pre-trib position. That is, we believe the church will be gone before the tribulation. Well, I for one will not die for that, even though I think that is the best view. And I, that's the one I hold. But I'm also, what would I think if it was a post-trib and that church goes home to be with the Lord at the end of the tribulation? What would it change in my life if I were to know that I was going to go through the tribulation? And before you answer that, no one is experiencing the tribulation today as it will be in that tribulation hour. But there are millions of Christians who are going through horrible persecution. My question to us is, regardless of your view, and I've shared with you mine, which I believe has the weight of Scripture, but would it change our life? If you had to go through the tribulation? Do we just serve Christ for the safety factor? This is one of the things that always disturbs me about the pre-trib position, which I take. Is that people say, oh, thank God, I won't have to suffer. 
Think about that a little bit. The Christians, historically, have they ever suffered unto death? What is it about this thing with our modern culture is, whatever it takes, I don't like to suffer more than anybody else. We're talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. What is it that I believe that God owes me no suffering? This concept has literally destroyed many Christians' view of what Christianity is truly about. You know, we have this God in heaven who's just going to erase all of my fears and all of my, all of my sufferings, and I don't have to worry about pills. I just, you know, God's my physician in that sense. When God has plainly said, we will suffer. Oh, well. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many. So, wow, how does he rule over the earth? This is how he does it. This is the only place I know of in Scripture that that God gives us a little tidbit on how the Antichrist does it. Because the rulers of the world will sell themselves out. What's the summary here of the Antichrist? We could probably do it in one word. Let me give it a try. The characterization of the Antichrist is the personification of a secular humanist. I didn't say humanist because that can be a positive term. A secular humanist is one who says, I believe in humanity, but there is no God. That's a secular humanist. And that's exactly characterizes the Antichrist. He is human but he is a human being who has no God except himself. You see any of those things around us today kind of coming on the horizon? People are all about themselves. It's what's good for me. I was delayed the other day of getting into a ministry, and I was sitting on the bench there waiting for another person, and I heard a lady who worked there take about ten minutes and tell another lady, which they knew I was in hearing distance, probably for my benefit, of how wicked men are and how, how finally she woke up and is now is free and she divorced her husband. And now she is just, it, life, life is, and she actually used this word, and I did happen to look up when she said, being free, being divorced is like being in heaven. And I thought, should I or should I not? (laughs) Fortunately, the chaplain walked in at that time and said, you ready to go? (laughs) But, you know, this is not a reference to divorce because I realize sometimes you take a divorce even though you don't want it. But the mindset of people who talk in those behaviors is the same people who say it in the face of God. I will not obey your commands. And I'm happy about it. That's our society today. Now, in verses 40 through 45, you don't have a characterization of the Antichrist, but but because he is that type of a character, quotes around the word, he's at war. People without God are always at war. (laughs) You can't be at peace. You're always at war. You're at war with people. You're at war, you're at war at everything. The Antichrist 
makes a covenant with Israel at the beginning of the 70th week, as, as many of you know. Now, what's going to happen is there becomes an alignment of nations. And notice in verse 40, at the end time, that would also confirm the fact that these verses are not historical. At the end time, a point in time making what is going to completion, in other words, the duration is coming to a close. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. Collide with who? He will collide with the Antichrist and all of his armies. The word there, collide, means to engage in battle. Now, remember, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week is, the beast has made a covenant with Israel. I will protect you. I love you guys. I will take care of you. These armies of the world will not destroy you. I, I will not allow the Arab world and the Palestinians to do anything to you. I will, you just trust me, and there is peace for the first three and a half years of that 70th week. And the king of the north will storm against him, the Antichrist. There seems to be from other passages that there is this rumbling that the, the kings of the north, Syria in this case, and the kings of the south, Egypt, will go against Israel because they want the land. They're poor. <laughs> And they need what Israel has. Some have calculated that the minerals in the Dead Sea, is that an interesting name, is trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And the main mineral is phosphorus. What do you need to fight a war? Explosions. Phosphorus. And it seems as though an oil, oil and all of these things, and so they converge upon Israel. Well, obviously... The Antichrist shoots probably out of Rome, the headquarters, and shoots directly to Palestine to protect Israel. This probably happens in the first three and a half years. And I say probably because we're not really sure. But notice in Daniel chapter 11, verses 42 through 45. Then he, the Antichrist, will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt and will not escape. What he does, he conquers the kings of the north, the south turns and runs back to Egypt, and the Antichrist goes after them. In verse 43, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his heel. Just simply means that Antichrist takes Egypt, but he doesn't seem to be able to have the power to take care of those other satellite nations. But at that very time from Ezekiel 38 and 39, he hears of reports, and Daniel mentions it too, out of the north. Probably more than Syria because Syria has been defeated, so now you're probably looking at areas and territories up to the north that we would see it today as that area of Russia. And also, as Revelation says, the armies of the east with 200 million soldiers. Isn't it amazing how clear God's word is? And so the Antichrist, who has been battling Egypt and taking them all the way back and has taken their gold and the silver and in the process of taking the rest of those uh, countries that align the southern Mediterranean Sea, he hears of the rumblings of the north and he turns around and he moves back. There in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is where God, single-handedly in the mountains of Israel, destroys those armies to the far north. He just takes... Wipes them out himself. So now what you have is the armies of the east coming, probably from China direction, 
Also may be some possibility the United States is in that alignment by that time. Certainly we're not in much alignment with Europe anymore. But anyway, in verse 44, But the rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, disturb the Antichrist. He will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. In verse 45, he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas, between the Mediterranean Sea and, and the Dead Sea. He will pitch the tents of his royal provision between the seas and beautiful holy mountain, Israel. And yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. So when he moves into Israel, the Antichrist comes to an end. How does that happen? Here's, here's this block of armies coming out of the east. Revelation tells us that the Euphrates and the Tigris is dried up just by a hand of God. And these armies march through these huge rivers and come into Palestine. And the armies of the beast go to war with them. But it says here, no one will help him. Why? Why will no one come to the aid of the Antichrist? Notice in verse 1 of Daniel 12. Now at that time, Michael the archangel, the protector of Israel, as we've studied before, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, reference to Daniel, will arise. This protector of Israel, this angel who is the protector of the nation of Israel, there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation. Until that time. And at that time, your people, Israel, everyone who is found written in the book, This is a reference to God's book of the names of the elect will be rescued. That's quite a lot there. Wow, no one will come to the Antichrist's aid. Daniel is the protector. It's a time of distress. The word there is emotional pain, distress at every situation. Why? What could this possibly be? This is when the Antichrist turns on the Jewish people and he seeks to annihilate them. And Michael was there. And then in Revelation chapter 19, verses 19 through 21 fills in a little bit of the gap there. John says, as he wrote, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army, Christ. So here it is, the armies of the beast, the armies of the east. And they have come... And now here is Christ coming. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. That's not Satan. That's the Antichrist, and that's the false prophet. Verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him, Christ, who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. See, God's ready at any moment, at any time. What? He can take them out. Yet because of his design to bring Israel to repentance, he allows this to go to, it seems like the world is going to be annihilated of human beings. And God converges all of these armies that are left to a little piece of property about the size of Rhode Island. And there God does his what? His final work. 
Notice in Daniel 12, 2 and 3 as we close. Many of those who sleep, here's the encouragement. Remember now, many Jewish people in Daniel's time have been taken out into captivity. They're going to read of Daniel's writings. And he says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly. He's giving us a lot of information here that's important for you and me today. What is heaven going to be like? Well, if you've already got your request in for a mansion, you might be disappointed. I don't know what kind of dwelling place there's going to be. There's the Jerusalem that's a humongous-looking city, as much as we can tell. But God always tells us what we ought to fix our thoughts on. And here it is, found in Daniel. He says in verse 3, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's it. Do you want to shine brightly for Christ? You say, oh man, is that all it's heaven's about? Well, that may say something about your heart. It may say something about your heart and my heart today. Do I want to shine brightly for Christ? Do I desire that people would see Christ living in me and living in you? It seems to suggest perhaps it is a capacity to shine brightly for God. Every true born-again believer gets excited about that because it's about God and not about them. Now, we're going to lose probably 90% of our southern gospel hymns because we've got to take all of that out (laughs) and probably some other genres. Don't want to offend any of my Southern Gospel folks like my wife. Uh, but, <clears throat> uh, but in all seriousness, this is what we ought to be excited about. We ought to be excited about shining brightly. with it. This is Scripture, folks. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words. For you, Daniel, this is all you're going to get. Seal up the book. It's not the all of prophecy. John's going to write the book of Revelation. Paul's going to write some things in in Thessalonians and other parts of Scripture. Minor prophets write about it. Joel writes about it. But for you, Daniel, conceal these words. Seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Well, my friend, these are wonderful days that are ahead for us in eternity, even though there are some dark days facing probably Christians and the rest of humanity. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 through 6 kind of sums it all up. Then I saw thrones. This is at the end of the tribulation. I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded Because of the testimony of Jesus, those who did not take the mark of the beast, and because of the word of God, because they stood for truth, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life. There is a resurrection of those tribulation martyrs, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life. Those who were not in a relationship with Christ did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And John picks up on that and says, 
That's the great white throne judgment, which is the judgment for all unsaved people. In verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Folks, for a thousand years, we, you and I, Gentile and Jew, will worship and serve our Lord for a thousand years on this planet while Satan is bound. The false prophet and the Antichrist are thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is bound for a thousand years and released after the thousand years for a short revolt which God brings down fire from heaven and scorches him, puts an end to him forever. But we will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. I don't know what those thousand years are going to be like, and I really don't know what heaven's going to be like. And probably you don't either. But I know this, it will be worth it. It will be worth it to be with our Lord and Savior. It will be worth it to no longer have to deal with this body of sin. No longer to have to blind my eyes to things and then confess the things that go through my mind, in your mind. And those are the things, folks, that excite us about our life in Christ. It's not about the streets of gold. It's not about the mansion and who's going to get the one next door to Jesus. Who really cares? God is omnipresent. He is omniscient. We will be with him, and we will be serving him and worshiping him. And as we've said before, if you don't enjoy worship of your Lord and Savior today, you probably really need to say, am I going to be there? Because when God saves us, even though we are not perfect, there's just something inside of us that says, Lord, I want to worship you. I want to be around other believers. I don't want to be in isolation. I don't want to be a lone ranger. I want to be around people. I want my light to shine for Christ. It's not about me. It's about him. Those are just normal Christian livings. That's not for the super elite because there aren't any. That's just normal. So again, let me remind you of the big point. The God of this age is defeated by the God of eternity. And if your day is really dark today or you don't know it yet, but this week is really going to be dark Let me encourage you. We know you win. And no matter how dark this week is, you are winning. You are winning. So the lessons to be learned are these. There's two. The importance of knowing that God wins at the end of time is to encourage us as Christians that our work and labor for him is not in vain. It may appear to be so. You may be discipling somebody and you just think they don't get it. Let God worry about that. Be concerned, yes. Let God worry about that. You just be faithful in your discipling of other people or whatever ministry God has called you to. Secondly, the importance of knowing that God wins at the end of time is encourage us to be wise and direct many to righteousness through Christ alone. Those are the things that excite Christians as we read the text. And so we have the privilege this morning before we go out and face our snowstorm 
We have the privilege to worship our God. What do we think about him? Who is he? Who is he to us? What has he done? What is he doing? What will he do? That should just spur spur in us, spur us on to worship. Lord, let me tell you how thankful I am. Lord, let me tell you what I appreciate about what Daniel wrote and the encouragement it is in my darkest hour, whatever it may be. We're going to take our normal 20, 30 seconds. Let you talk to God. That's called worship. Let's do that. Father, while we are before you personally as believers, there may be our friends here this morning who have never come to a personal relationship in Christ. Maybe they've been religious. Maybe they've been raised in a Christian home. Perhaps, Father, they have made some type of a decision as a young child or a young teen or even an adult. But nothing ever clicked. It may have been just an emotional experience in which they were sorry for a sin and they wanted to be forgiven, but a commitment to live for you was never really thought about at that time. But, Lord, there certainly isn't joy in this Christian journey. Father, perhaps your spirit has been so gracious this morning to ignite that emptiness to which that person or persons would say, I need something in my life more than I have. I need to sense that peace of God, knowing that my sins are forgiven, there's purpose to life, that God is the one that is the sufficiency of my life. He is the filler of my life. I want nothing else but Him. And Father, may they be assured right where they sit, that you command them to repent, to confess their sins, and to surrender their lives to you. Lest, Lord, they face the consequences of their rebellion towards you. May they enjoy hearing that you command them to come to you, because that's exactly what they want to do. So, Father, I would ask right now with their head in mind before you, they would say, God, that's exactly what I want. I receive you. I tell you. I hear your command. I hear your exhortation. I do repent. Change my mind. I want a new way of living. And so, Lord, teach me how to live as your child. And for that, we'll give you great praise, Father, because only you can do that in Christ Jesus and through your Spirit. Thank you for this wonderful book, Daniel, as we conclude it next week for your glory. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.